This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've uh, certainly heard lots of rhetoric uh, from all corners in regard to NAFTA and uh, trying to hammer out a new deal between the United States, Canada and Mexico. Uh, we have sent people down there uh, for months uh, trying to uh, have backdoor negotiations and and try to smooth this uh, this negotiation as much as it can be. Uh, despite all of that preliminary work, uh, Donald Trump still throwing around words like he, he simply wants to tear it up and uh, and start over. Uh, Canada has been uh, very optimistic and well prepared, you must say, um, going into all of this, but even they... Uh, are starting to admit that uh, Christia Freeland, uh, Freeland obviously admitting that uh, it's, a, it's a difficult time for negotiations, even the Prime Minister alluding to that uh, yesterday as well. But also Stephen Harper, who uh, former Prime Minister of Canada, who just happened to be there the same day that uh, Justin Trudeau was uh, meeting with Donald Trump. Here's what he had to say on what he thought the success of the NAFTA talks would be. I don't think that it's going to be adequate for President Trump to have an agreement that he cannot in some concrete way say is going to improve the lives of some of these masses of people who voted for him. Um, So I think it's got to be a lot more than some kind of technical revamp. All right. Joining us now, Andrea Bjorklund, professor, faculty of law, McGill University, is with us now. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me. Are you surprised at how the tone of this has suddenly turned? It seemed relatively optimistic, perhaps cautiously optimistic, when uh, all of these negotiations started, a lot of preamble. Uh, Now you've got uh, both sides saying, I don't know about this. Yeah, I am a bit surprised. Uh, If this this were uh, December, November, building closer, even closer to the the deadline of the end of December that the negotiators have set for themselves, I would be less surprised that I thought that it would be, it's a little, I thought, it was a little premature to be so uh, pessimistic. Um, that being said, with uh, this presidency in the United States, it would seem that we should become used to surprises. Uh, Andrea, let me ask you this. Is Harper conceding NAFTA would be a much harder sell now period than it was way back when? Would that be accurate? Well, he's certainly suggesting that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't. I can't say that he's wrong, although we should remember that NAFTA was a pretty hard sell back in the early 90s uh, that the Clinton, President Clinton had to go back to renegotiate the environment and labor site agreements to sell it to the U.S. Congress and the Mexican government. And I think the Canadian government was skeptical as well. So uh, why why would it be more difficult now? Uh, Has it worked for us? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing about whether it's more difficult now is I do think the center, at least in the United States, has shrunk. The center is where the consensus about the benefits of free trade, I think, has been the strongest. And if you've got a a larger Democratic group really opposed to free trade because of effects on labor and a larger conservative right wing group opposed to free trade, possibly because of effects on labor, possibly because of nationalistic tendencies, that means that the pathway has become uh, more narrow. Does that mean that it worked or didn't work or hasn't or hasn't worked? What it means is it's worked for some people. It hasn't worked for others. And certainly the United States and I think to some extent Canada and Mexico, too, have not been great about trade adjustment assistance, about affecting those who are dislocated. So... Free trade is great in the aggregate, but it has a deleterious effect on certain people more than others, and governments have not wanted to put money or resources into addressing the left those left behind. Whose responsibility is that? Is it governments or the companies that are taking advantage of this? Hmm. Well, I think it's it's both. Ideally, you would have some kind of partnership. You know, the company is responsible for taxes. Uh, I don't think any of the three governments want to go to a, I guess, a French or an Italian model that says companies have to employ people for life. Um, But if they don't want to do that, I think it is the government's responsibility to step in to uh, facilitate 
change and transition for those who have to look for new jobs. How do you do that in a global economy, especially if there isn't trade deals to link you all? Uh, you, you know, you you keep uh, continually readjusting. You uh, don't stop assistance in a year or two. Um, you look for new opportunities uh, to uh, bring in, you know, high-level manufacturing uh, and new training opportunities for services in those areas where the countries have a comparative advantage. You said earlier the center has shrunk. Uh, that's one of the reasons for the reactions that, that we are seeing. How is, is, this, is the center being drawn to any one of these? Where, where is the center left to go? <laughs> well, isn't that the, the question? If I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Hmm. Uh, the I, I, I think the center probably is still pro-free trade, and I, I also think there's a strong status quo bias. So whether NAFTA was beneficial or harmful in 2000 or in 1994, uh, we've had it for 23 years. Uh, it kind of it is, uh, and certainly changing that now would be harmful to a lot of different people. So I think there's a strong. I think the center would have a strong preference for. Uh, the status quo, or for or for an improvement, or a you know facilitation and uh, uh, betterment of the status quo. Is it wrong to think that a, that an agreement that you came up with twenty twenty five years ago is still workable now? Uh, is it is is that naive? I mean, do these things just simply due to progress have to be? Um, well, I guess the debate is whether they're scrapped altogether or or adapted in some way. Uh, but but at the end of the day, I mean, don't is there any sort of thing that the model that will last that length of time? Well, uh, what NAFTA has done is removed tariffs on you know most goods, especially manufactured goods between the three that move between the three countries. That's a you know that's a permanent that well, semi permanent. Yeah. I guess nothing is permanent, but that's something that. I guess can last. There's no reason that that has to change or, or should change. Uh, you know, the, the pieces of the agreement that are harder uh, to project into the future are things that didn't exist or barely existed in 1993 when it was being negotiated. E-commerce. We didn't really have e-commerce right. then. So that's something that it just doesn't address, and that I think it need, needs to be modernized. But as far and rules of origin, some of the rules of origin we've heard about the automobile rules of origin, but they were negotiated in a very kind of context-specific way, and I think that you know that does need to be updated. But parts of the agreement are, I say, perennial. They don't need to be changed. You don't you don't need to change the tariff on manufactured goods from zero to zero. It's, mm. it's still good. Uh, Harper said uh, that it, you have to prepare for life without it. Uh, how do you do that? Well, I think if you're businesses, you probably try to retrench and start looking at local sourcing, right? You start looking at, you look at what your input products are, you look at what the tariffs are, what they would be under the WTO, and you start making calculations about whether you can continue with your I guess, tried and true suppliers or whether you have to change. Um, but for some, that'll be easier than for others. For those that, for which it's more difficult, I should imagine they are going to be reluctant to make those changes because of the costs involved. So I think they're going to pin their hopes on the Chamber of Commerce and hope for the best. Mm. Uh, Trump says that it's best to scrap this whole thing rather than alter it. Is there any sense to that or is that just branding? Well, I think that's just branding um, uh, rhetoric. Uh, I mean, that might be where we end up, but I don't think that's the desirable. That's the most desirable approach. Uh, when uh, is there anything good to have come out of Trump's rhetoric? Is there anything, or would we have all got here eventually just with some common sense and and diplomacy? <laughs> Um, well, uh, maybe the good, I don't know if it, co- it comes out of his rhetoric, but if it is, it comes out of the forced renegotiation of NAFTA, that might be a good thing, because, because I do think there are ways in which the agreement can and should be updated. Um, I could put on a kind of cynical hat to say, you know, that 
negotiation actually occurred. It was called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, hmm. and there was a perfect, you know, there was an updated NAFTA, which admittedly encompassed many more uh, economies, but uh, which was an updated agreement, modern agreement for modern times. And he wasn't willing to start there because he doesn't like apparently multilateral agreements and. Uh, I don't. I don't think that was a valid reason for abandoning the TPP. So. Uh, and yesterday spoke of even the possibility of a separate deal with Canada, which is bizarre because we seem to be going backwards. The whole reason to have free trade and everything was to was to was to simplify all of this. Um, is there any advantage to that for us? Yeah. I mean, uh, probably. I don't think there's much of an advantage. There might be. It might be better than nothing. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, but the jobs, I mean, the, the purported advantage would be perhaps that some of the jobs in that are now in Mexico would either, you know, would come to Canada or come to the U.S. Um, but frankly, I don't think that's likely to happen. It's much more likely that those jobs, if they're reliant on lower paid wages, lower paid, a w- lower paid workforce, those are going to go to China. They're going to go to Vietnam. They're not going to come to Canada. Um, Mexico's, you know, potentially big market for Canada. Uh, so I think Canada is a little bit harmed by losing preferential access to the Mexican market. Although maybe it would still have it via TPP if the remaining TPP entities uh, go ahead and move forward. Uh, you were talking about the automotive industry uh, a little earlier. Uh, reports coming out now that it, it has not recovered since the uh, since the recession. Will probably mm-hmm. not go back to the levels that that it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald, of course, uh, preaching protect- uh, protectionism. It, protectionism. Mm-hmm. How do we keep Canadians working if not protectionism? To be to play devil's advocate. <laughs> Well, the thing about protectionism is, is who pays, right, and how you pay for it. So you might might be able to keep Canadians working. However, how many people in Canada can buy automobiles? 38 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some families have a couple cars, but uh, there's a finite market. Uh, one of the reasons the U.S. so that's one of the reasons Canada has been such a stalwart, I guess, trade negotiator and a stalwart uh, seeker of external markets. The United States, of course, is bigger, so the United States has a potential. I think has more leeway when it comes to protectionism because of the size of its market. Uh, but even that is, uh, I, I think, the doors have been opened uh, to competition from other, uh, from from external sources, mm. from German automobiles, Japanese automobiles, and some of which are made in the United States uh, now, but. To the extent that North American automobiles, which is what we have, not American, not Mexican, and not Canadian, but North American automobiles are exported and are competitive internationally, that's largely because of uh, a lot of work done in Mexico. And without that being done, I I don't think you have a a market to replace uh, the sales that you would get from those uh, exports. Andrea Bjorklund has been with us, professor, faculty of law, McGill University. Andrea, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new report says Canada's automotive industry has no sustained indication that it'll return to pre-session levels uh, of investment uh, prior to uh, what we saw in 2008. Uh, is this the blunt reality? Let's bring in Brendan Sweeney, Project Manager, Automotive Policy Research Center at McMaster University, and with us now. Hello, Brendan. How are you today? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Hi, Scott. I'm doing great. So is this the blunt reality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the you know In the early 2000s, we lost several assembly plants. Um, that was followed up by a new assembly plant by Toyota in the late 2000s. And we lost another couple plants uh, immediately following the uh, during and following the recession. Um, the industry has recovered to some degree from 2009, uh, and there you know there are elements of good news, um, particularly over the past five years. But the likelihood that the industry is going to uh, get back to where it was, kind of between '98 and '05, um, it it it. it we probably won't see those levels of production, those levels of employment, those levels of contributions to GDP anytime soon. Um, 
And probably the only way we would see that is if there were some investments in new assembly plants. And uh, those don't appear to be on the horizon. It's possible, but they don't appear to be on the immediate horizon anyway. At one time, it wasn't that long ago, Ontario, Canada boasted about its automotive industry uh, producing more cars, I think, in Ontario at one point than Detroit during the tough times. Uh, What happened? What changed? Um, I mean, the, the, the recession really um, had a catalyzing effect on those changes, but we have seen um, an increased amount of investment going south. Uh, and I think we know the story. Uh, originally, investment was going into the southern United States. Uh, and then after that, investment uh, started going to Mexico. We've, all, we've, we've also seen a change in kind of the structure of the industry, uh, who's in the industry. One of the big... Um, one of the big changes is there has been a pretty significant exodus of U.S.-owned parts makers, um, particularly starting around 2005. Um, so U.S.-owned parts makers, some of those bigger companies um, really don't have as much of a footprint in Canada as, as they once did as, and as they kind of traditionally did. So. so how did Ontario grow to where it was in the first place? Why was there more incentives there than there was in Mexico then or southern United States? Um, Well, there was a point in time where Ontario just blew people, uh, blew blew other jurisdictions out of the water in terms of quality and cost. Um, There were policies, notably the Auto Pact, um, that, that ensured that, you know, the Detroit 3 um, would... Uh, pre, you know, sustain a particular amount of their footprint relative to their sales in Canada, uh, in in Canada, and that really helped things along. When that kind of shook out, um, that um, that had a, a significant impact. Um, also, quality is becoming ubiquitous aqua- across different um, assembly regions and different auto regions, and Canada probably still um, has a much higher quality. Um, in its workforce than in a lot of other regions in the world, maybe than most other regions in the world. Uh, but those other regions are catching up. Um, so what Canada once did way better, we're just kind of doing a bit better. How do we change uh, that? How do, is there any way we can grow with that? Um, there, it, it would probably be getting, you know, we, we've seen some adjustments. We're doing more high-value-added, more high-tech vehicles. Um, certainly, Canada is becoming a player in the new automotive uh, software, and we're actually we're really really good at making things out of metal, uh, particularly kind of uh, high value lightweight metals. Um, and so, I think we've got to capitalize on our ability to do that. Maybe we've got to get out and uh, and, and sell it a bit more. Um, but are we going to be the low cost? supplier of the world's automotive parts and of, uh, or of North America's automotive parts or North America's vehicles. I don't think we're going to be that. I don't think we want to be that. So um, it might be kind of really understanding what we're good at, um, selling that, promoting that, uh, getting some public policy behind us to support that, uh, which, which I think the government uh, of Canada and Ontario have been doing a good job at. And, uh, and, and just, you know, Keeping, uh, keeping with that strategy, just focusing on what we do really well. So. Uh, so how does NAFTA play into this? How does it confuse this whole, this whole issue? Because, again, you know, it's not really whether a car is made in Ontario or Michigan, because now they're North American. They're made bits in here, bits there, bits everywhere, it seems. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think you had right now... Um, you had uh, the word confused as uh, might be a, it might be a good description. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and, you know, you get different, different stories, different rhetoric. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're a, a, a few weeks, maybe a few months away from really knowing, okay, what is the next NAFTA? What is the revised NAFTA? What is the new NAFTA going to look like? Um, I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, and once that, once we get details on that, I think that's when you're going to start seeing um, investors, right? The OEMs, some of the big parts makers, some of the new technology uh, companies, and governments start to put together 
their plans for the next couple of years. Um, but I, I do think people are kind of sitting tight, waiting to see what happens before they make longer-term investment plans what's, right now. What's to stop any large company from just saying, well, you know what, the labor's cheaper there, so that's where I'm going. I mean, that's exactly what's happening, and that's not really going to, it's not really showing any signs of slowing down, is it? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, I, I think you do have to recognize that there are going to be certain models of uh, vehicle. There are uh, supply chain advantages that we have in Canada um, that, you know, we've really got to capitalize on and make sure that people know um, that people know about. I, I, I think that several um, several of the OEMs and a lot of the parts makers really have recognized that, that there are advantages to doing certain work in Canada. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, but there's, there's no question that, um, costs are costs. Uh, you know, it could be, but you know, there's, 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 there's an argument for low costs and there's also an argument for, you know, you, you, you get what you pay for. And, um, the quality of the Canadian workforce, uh, again, you know, other other places are catching up. Could we kind of uh, start widening that gap again? Yeah, probably. Uh, uh, but it will take some effort. Stephen so. Harper in Washington and, and was talking NAFTA with uh, with some down there and was saying that he was disappointed in bailing out uh, General Motors only to watch them uh, take jobs and, 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 and head down to Mexico. What do you? Where do you see the future of the auto industry in this country? Um, I think that we probably will and should um, really lock down our assembly capabilities. Um, and we should really hone in on kind of what what we do better than anyone else, what, than anyone else, uh, what we can do in Canada better than anyone else, um, what we can do in partnership with Michigan, where the Detroit Three um, still have their headquarters. Right where a number of large parts makers are headquartered, um, and you know, get out and do that, and get out and sell that, and that will probably be, um, you know, just honing in, focusing our strategies on on what we do best. How much how much influence can governments have? And you know, you hear a lot of union leaders saying that they should be doing more to keep jobs here, and so on and so forth. I mean, is there what can companies do when, for example, you you know, you hear what Stephen Harper said, like he bailed them out and then they left. What what what, what can governments do here? Um, I mean, the, the, there is a substantial role for public policy and for governments um, to help support the auto industry, and that can come in a number of ways. And that can be to support infrastructure. That can be support to support education and training, um, and that can be to kind of identify and again really get a good handle. I, I'd like to think that we that our research center helps with this. Get a good handle on you know what the footprint looks like in Canada, who the companies are, who their customers are, what we're doing well, um, and again focus in on some of the things that we do really really well rather than trying to kind of be good at, 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 uh, at everything. Um, you know, the auto industry changes so fast in the technology. The cars, you know, if you've ever been in a Tesla, um, you know, these cars are, you know, quite different than, um, you know, than what a car was 20 years ago. Hmm. And a lot of it is, it, it's not, that, you know, there are some times where, you know, we change something, right, where, in, uh, an electric vehicle has a has a different propulsion system um, than uh, an internal combustion engine based vehicle. Um, so that's a change. But then there's a lot of new vehicle technology that's just going to be in addition to um, what we already have in our cars, right? So there will be basically there's more bells and whistles in our cars. The mm. car will be. Um, the, the infotainment system. It'll be our device on wheels. System. It'll be our yeah, device exactly. on wheels, basically. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, and there, there are vehicles out there that are already are the device yep. on wheels. It's just when, um, you know, when that technology gets more, probably when it comes down in, in cost a little bit, and when people start buying new cars, they're gonna they're gonna find that there's a lot of amazing stuff that we can put in cars. Um, that they want that when it gets affordable, um, they're, they're, they're going to they're going to want that, and that 
some of that technology should be, can be produced in Canada. Brendan Sweeney has been with us, Project Manager, Automotive Policy Research Centre at McMaster University. Brendan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As we move closer and closer towards a provincial election, uh, we're, you know, uh, I guess waiting for Patrick Brown to say more than what he is saying. That has seemed to be happening now as uh, the Liberals really have nothing left in the goodie bag at this point uh, and are now just focusing on anything that they can uh, pull the strings on to see if uh, they can somehow, of course, uh, I guess, uh, jog loose the perception that it's time for change. Uh, The leaders of the progressive Ontario progressive conservatives say that social conservative issues are off limits at their policy convention, sex education, the abortion debate, all of that that are off limits. Uh, To talk more of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to The Washington Times. Michael is with us now. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Michael. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Your thoughts on uh, Patrick Brown's performance to date. Critics have said that uh, he hasn't said or done anything, instead choosing to sort of lie back and let the liberals implode. What are your thoughts on his performance? Well, he's certainly done things. I mean, I know a lot of people are saying that, and it's actually kind of nonsense when you think about it, because they have released policies. Patrick Brown has been in the legislature. He has gone through the barbecue circuit. He has made speeches. He has made comments about what the conservatives plan to do in a variety of things, including, say, a carbon tax, um, lowering uh, taxes for, for families and households, et cetera, et cetera. They are certainly trying to make themselves an an alternative to the liberals. I think what people have been frustrated about, generally speaking, is that they feel that he's sort of lying low on a lot of different policy issues, especially with the Ontario Liberals and Premier Kathleen Wynne sitting at numbers, which right now, if an election were held today, the liberals would probably find themselves in third place overall and way way out of government. But look, the, the end result is that things are starting to ramp up now, and that's obviously what's important. The policy convention that's going to be held next month is obviously going to have a lot of discussion, both from, uh, well, including Mr. Brown's senior leaders and grassroots members, discussing things that matter to them, or at least in, in terms of what matters for the country, especially in terms of economic policy and fiscal conservatism. Through that, you will see a lot of different policy ideas and initiatives that the government will proceed with, along with whatever Patrick Brown and his staff are building or planning to build, and that will make the nucleus or create the nucleus of a campaign which many Ontarians, including myself, hope is effective next year and get rid of the Liberals after 14 years of ineffective government. These conventions are a melting pot of all the thoughts uh, from everyone in the party. Obviously, opposition parties love to grab the extreme uh, points of these, whatever party it is, and then run with it and try to paint that sort of picture. Can Patrick Brown go into a convention with his own party and say, hey, we're not talking about this, we're not talking about that, here's where we're going? Look, Because isn't that what these conventions are for? Well, yes. I mean, that's the whole thing. I, I understand the point they're trying to make. They don't want to have their convention hijacked by what they perceive to be small or single interest groups. I get that. We have seen problems in the past in a lot of different policy conventions. I mean, Danielle Smith, the former leader of Alberta's Wild Rose Party, can certainly talk about that quite well, where you have a lot of people try to sort of switch the agenda to something that's either of a a single-minded focus or something that they want to have as a discussion on a broader theme. The complication is when you basically say that social conservatism conservatism is off-limits, I think that obviously creates a lot of trigger words for people, and it's very hard to do this in a convention. It's one thing for Patrick Brown to say that these views, you know, if you have, say, a position on abortion or, um, or gay marriage or, let's say, capital punishment, gun rights, whatever, and they don't fit the sort of purview or the window that he wants to elaborate on as an opposition leader and eventually as premier of the province, hopefully, next year, I get that. And he can actually say that some of these conversations during the policy convention 
They can declare them to be non-binding, that they're discussions. You can have different policy rooms where things are discussed amongst the members and they try to reach some sort of consensus or at least try to see which idea makes more sense than another. I think it's a real problem if you try to say that, no, everything is off the table, so to speak. We're not having these discussions because there are people who are going to go to the PC policy convention who will be interested in talking about social conservative issues, religion, family, abortion, capital punishment, etc., because these things matter to them for a variety of reasons. And conservatism is of two, uh, two basic groups, which is fiscal conservatism and social conservatism, which means there are fiscal conservatives and social conservatives both within the party. And some people, including myself, although I'm not a party member, actually link both of them together in his or her own philosophy. So no, there is really no way to say everything's off limits, we can't have these discussions, but the Ontario PC party in that policy convention can certainly control the agenda and ensure that, let's say they don't want to have a discussion about abortion, for example, that if it's talked about, it's discussed in a very light fashion, and it goes no further than that. You can certainly stop a conversation very early on. You know, the media will obviously pick up on that, and that's part of life. You can't really avoid it. But what they're basically trying to do, and that being Patrick Brown and his staff, they're trying to ensure that the, co- the convention is not hijacked by small groups. Uh, critics will say uh, what the PCs are doing is changing their tune just to get elected. Does that mean once they get elected that they'll start having these discussions? Is that the picture they're trying to paint? I don't think so. I, I, you know, I don't think Ontario is interested in having these discussions right now. I don't think there are actually a lot of conservatives right now in Canada who really want to have these conversations. Whether we should or we shouldn't is actually really a discussion for another day. But, I I mean, you can't avoid them. Although, obviously, in Canada we discuss social conservatism less than, say, the United States does, it's still a component of Canadian conservatism in general. And it's also a component of what Ontario conservatives think about we don't all think about necessarily, you know, t- levels of taxation, the size of government, etc. There are other people who have, quite frankly, other interests and ideas. And look, that's something that Patrick Brown, when he became leader, and all the previous leaders of all political parties have to deal with. You have to weigh the good and the bad, and you have to balance things off so that you maintain political bridges with people who are like-minded and people who are your opponents so that you can build a broad-based coalition and have a big umbrella for your party. It's not a perfect science, and I'd be the last person to say that. And obviously, when you hear comments like, you know, these things are off-limits, we don't want to talk about, you're just going to obviously frustrate a lot of grassroots members and supporters who happen to be social conservatisms, and they think that their views are just either being ignored or just pushed aside, you know, patted on the head, don't worry, we'll discuss it later. My guess is that, you know, Ontario will always have to discuss some of these issues from time to time, and the Ontario PCs will have to discuss it from time to time. No one's saying that they're avoiding the issues completely. That would be utter madness, and you can't do it anyway. They just don't want to have their policy convention solely focused on issues that, A, Ontarians are not really talking about much, B, Ontario Conservatives, quite frankly, are not talking about very much, and I think also as well, he wants to ensure that he has a policy platform in place that makes sense for all Ontarians from all walks of life. That's the only way you can achieve political success in this country. I certainly understand his stance on, uh, you know, here's, here's my stance on the new sex ed curriculum. Here's my stance on pro-choice. Sure. Uh, and, and say we're not discussing these, or we can discuss these social issues amongst ourselves if you want, but here's where the party's going. Right. But is carbon tax a social issue? No, absolutely not. It's not a social issue, and I don't see why that would be off-limits. I mean, it's, not, it's something that a lot of conservatives, including me, do not favor, and I think it is something that should be discussed. But remember, if the leader wants to go a certain way, ultimately, that's his or her choice. The membership, though, at a policy convention has the right to discuss these issues, and if it goes to a binding vote where it's basically going to either be part of the policy handbook or say, part of the election platform, that's where it gets kind of interesting and could get kind of testy as well. I think a carbon tax should be open for discussion. I don't see any reason why not. 
the same way if someone wants to propose, let's say, a flat tax for Ontario, that should also be open season as well at a policy convention. It's about stuff that you can chew on. It's about stuff that will be tangible for the average voter. It's about stuff that actually matters for the province. So if he doesn't want to talk about abortion or same-sex marriage, and he basically either says those issues have been dealt with 90 times you know, in the past, we don't want to deal with it a 91st time, or they just don't want to get into it because they feel it'll hijack the conference and take it in a completely different direction than they originally intended, I get that part, part of it, even if it's not necessarily the best way or, quite frankly, the most democratic way to handle the situation. But when it comes to policies dealing with economics, like a carbon tax? No, it's got to be on the table. And I would be very shocked if they didn't have a discussion about the carbon tax, whether or not they like what they hear coming from the membership. Uh, bad timing here. Why Patrick Brown saying this now? Uh, is it bad to state this now? Or is it good to get the rules of engagement out there before you start? Well, look, I think that it's sometimes it's better to get it right out there out in the open so that people are not coming into this policy conference believing that, well, every it's open season. I can discuss wherever I want. You know, I can talk about, say, clowns walking across the road every Tuesday and Thursday, but if not, they get a fine if they do it on Wednesdays. As silly as that may sound, you want to know that everything is available for discussion to some extent. I get that. But at the same time, the Ontario PCs have to be focused on winning this election. The same way, quite frankly, the Ontario Liberals, the Ontario NDP, the Green Party of Ontario, and everybody else has to be focused on winning this election. Ergo, you have to ensure that you have a laser focus on the issues that matter to voters or would-be voters, what potentially would affect them one way or the other, whether it be via education, whether it be taxes, the size of government, the family unit in general, you know, the cost of auto insurance. It, it doesn't even matter what it is. It has to be issues that are going to resonate with the general populace. Social conservative issues are important, and there's no point in saying they're not or that we can't discuss them. They are relevant. They are always going to be important. Should they be the, should they be the be-all and end-all of any party's agenda, which means that fiscal conservatism takes a backseat all the time to social conservatism, which is more important in the grand scheme of things? No. I would argue that you have to balance both of them. You have to have fiscal ideas and social ideas in place, conservative or otherwise, to actually ensure that your party is covering all the views that the province, in this case Ontario, wants to hear. You can't ignore one completely. But at a policy convention, you can definitely set the rules in play, because it is their party, after all, that you don't have to discuss these issues. Would I do it as a leader? No, because I, I tend to be more like uh, who I mentioned earlier, the Danielle Smith, Danielle Smith model, which is sort of laissez-faire. We've all got to, you know, leave it alone. We've all got to discuss it. We've got to flesh this out and try to figure out which way this party is going. I know that is the riskier way of doing things, and it can allow a conference or a policy convention to be hijacked. I get that. At the same time, that's the way democracy works. It's imperfect, not perfect. Hmm. However, the end result is that Patrick Brown is the leader of that party. His staff are in control of that policy convention. People will come in. They'll discuss issues. But it's their party, it's their rules, and it's their conference. And if you don't like it, quite frankly... One, voice your displeasure there, and two, if you're really not that happy, well, then you have some choices. Either don't go or don't vote for them, because unfortunately, that's the way democracy works too, which is also imperfect for every leader. So what are the Sam Oosterhoffs of the world thinking today? I don't know. You would have to ask them. I would imagine that Sam Oosterhoff, who is a social conservative, although he is a fiscal conservative too, it should be pointed out, has been a good team player to date. And he has probably heard certain things coming from either the leader or the leader's office that he may not necessarily agree with. The same way that Patrick Brown, his own leader, and his leader's office may not necessarily agree with Mr. Roosterhoff on some of his positions and policies about abortion, uh, marriage, etc. I think, though, that Sam Roosterhoff, who has now been in politics for a little while, and although people were sort of mocking him, saying, how could this young homeschool kid actually make an effective MPP? He's actually turned out to be effective, 
and he's actually been able to orient himself to the point where he has been a good team player, working hard with the Ontario PCs, and I think he realizes that it's not all about him. And again, Hmm. it's the same way for every leader. It's not all about Patrick Brown. It's not all about Kathleen Wynne. It's not all about Andrea Horvath. It's about the people of Ontario and, more importantly, the people of their particular parties and what they feel like and what they want to have achieved by the party, by the government, etc. That's what it has to be. It's a collective outfit. I know it's awful to say, especially for a conservative, to talk about collectivism in any positive fashion. Hmm. But that's how a party unit works. It has to be cohesive. You have to work together. You can't have... 50,000 Indians and 50,000 chiefs, and I'm sorry to use the word because I know we're getting rid of it recently, um, and have them sort of running around saying, I'm in control. You have to be focused on one path. And in the end, ultimately, Patrick Brown, as leader, has the right to take them down that path. And if there are certain things that he doesn't want to have in his platform, he either has to ensure they don't get there or do his darndest to ensure they never come in. How does uh, Patrick Brown prevent him uh, prevent from what happened in the last two elections where at the, in the end it's just basically given to the Liberals? Well, look, Patrick Brown and Tim, and Tim Hudak, the former leader, are two different political animals. I guess that's one way to look at it. Tim Hudak obviously had many ideas that, well, conservatives like myself liked, but his campaigns occasionally went, I would say, off the rails when they talked about things like chain gangs or questions about how many people the Ontario pieces would or would not hire in the private sector, what would happen to union jobs. There was always too much confusion going on, and I think at times there were almost too many things being released in a particular platform, which just serves, quite frankly, to confuse voters in general. The best thing to do is have a policy plan in place, which the Ontario PCs will in November, and use that as a model, with understanding that other things will pop up from time to time that you have to add or subtract from that policy platform, and that has to be the way and the approach you go, and not to get these, or not to let diversions, I guess, get in your way that actually push you down a different path. Michael, so I got to let I got As long as Brown keeps the right path, he will be fine. Michael Tobis been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the t- uh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, um, NFL owners are meeting next week to consider changes to the game, a manual uh, that says players should stand during the national anthem. This is what Commissioner Roger Goodall had to say. There has been no policy change. Uh, What we've had is unprecedented dialogue over the last year with our players, our owners, with community leaders, law enforcement. Uh, And what we plan to do is have a very uh, in-depth discussion with our players and our owners next week and make sure we truly understand uh, the issues and also understand the approach that we want to take together with the players to address these issues in our communities. So, Rick, Rick Zamperin is with us, of course, uh, sports director at uh, CHML. Is he asking them to reconsider this? Is he telling them what to do? Or is he, say we're, is he saying we're going to debate this? I think it's half and half right now. I think, I think Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, wants this issue to come to a conclusion sooner rather than later. How that happens is going to be the, you know, the, the essence of what they're going to be talking about next week at the owners' meetings uh, in New York. You know what? It, uh, from from a fan standpoint, I think most fans are uh, cognizant of the fact that there are some significant issues, especially in the United States, with what uh, African Americans have to endure, what they have endured. And for Colin Kaepernick to do what he did last year, he really stuck his neck out. And and we realize that even more so, knowing that he's no longer in the league. Some suggest mm-hmm. he has been blackballed. I, I would subscribe a little bit to that to that theory because he could still play. Um, they made their point. They being the group of individuals who've decided to take a knee or sit or raise yeah. a fist or you know link arms. And I think what this issue has done it, it has created a dialogue. There's no doubt about that. We are all talking about this issue. What it hasn't done is solve the problem. Yeah. We are still seeing those race relations issues uh, in the U.S. from 
really every corner of, of, of that country. And hey, it happens here too. I mean, Canada is not uh, you know, mm-hmm. immune to that. Uh, but the point has been made. I think what they have to come to uh, agreement now is how do we move forward? I think that's what is going to be discussed next week. I don't buy for a fact that Roger Goodell or any of the, of the team owners are going to force players to stand. Right. I think that I think they I think they make that statement. Obviously, you know, right. any owner can say, "Hey, Scott, you're going to do that." Does it sound that way moving into this uh, discussion? Does I, it sound like, "Hey, you know what? We want you guys to stand." I know there's been some suggestions. It hasn't come mm-hmm. from the commissioner's office. It no. certainly hasn't come from the National Football Players Association to say, "Yeah, you're going to be forced to stand or if you don't uh, want to partake in the anthem, you'll be forced to stay in the locker room or just stay in the right. locker room." I don't think either of those are going to happen. I think they're going to. I think the league and the players' association will come to an agreement to say, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to, uh, you know, make this a calm sea, make this a calm pond, and get rid of these massive waves that have been created. And I think the fact of the matter is that at the end of the day, they'll have their players stand for the anthem. I think they have to. But if, if I'm the commissioner, I'm saying, listen, you know, let let's stand in unity. You know, yeah. we, we want to show some unity. You know, we're all linking arms. You know, Jerry Jones, a couple of weekends ago, kneeling with his entire team. They made their point. They're all unified in this stance. Now let's move forward. Um, as you said, though, uh, shouldn't they, or, or what about kneeing until the problem is solved? And isn't any restriction just going to be thought of as a means or a way to stop this protest? Yes. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from, too. I mean, if you force a player to do something, if you force an employee, these yeah. are employees, if yeah. you force an employee to do something that they don't believe in or don't yeah. want to do or want to do something else, uh, you know, that's the definition, really, of oppression. You are oppressing this individual or this or this group to do something that they don't want to. The, the issue with this issue is they've made their point. Now everyone is attacking these players who kneel or, or, or sit to say, now you're disrespecting the flag. So, right. I mean, the, the point has already been made. It's been belabored. And uh, Do you and, have a knee day? Do you have a day? Do you have a time? Do you have I don't a, know. A, I'm not sure if you, you can do that. that? Uh, and what can the league really do, considering what we've just talked about? Trump, the rhetoric coming out of him is yeah. certainly, wow, the league's coming on side. The league's mm-hmm. siding with me. Uh, you know, I think I think the league has done an okay job in terms of uh, kind of shifting the tide or turning the tide or paying more attention to violence against women. We've seen that over the last year. I think they have to pay a little more attention to what's happening with African Americans in the United States and how they do that is going to be the answer. They're, they're mm. certainly pro. Programs, whether they want to do a day, uh, I'm not sure if that's going to end what is happening. I'm not sure anything, whether the NFL or any other company, can do anything to end it because yeah. uh, it's it, a cultural it, issue. It's, it not, is, it's not a sporting it's, issue. It's uh, so as long as on sports, as long as it appears that the NFL is taking some sort of stance to move this discussion forward yeah. in the players' minds then this will be, everybody will be happy. I think so. I think you're going to see sometime after this meeting next week, Roger Goodell and Demory Smith, who's the president of the NFLPA, stand up together and say, we understand the issue here. Uh, we acknowledge the concerns. We're going to move forward to make this country, make this league a better place. And, you know, if you have concerns or issues, uh, you know, come come to the fore. Let's do this together. And I think... I'm not sure if every player after that is going to stand, but I think most players will kind of think of where each side is coming from and acknowledge the fact that you know they, they understand there's an issue in society and they're working towards trying to make it better. Is anybody asking the players what they think about this issue? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, uh, are they being brought into this discussion to say, hey, we're, you know, exactly what you yeah. just said. The point's been made. Now it's dividing the league. It's dividing the country. Where do you want to take this? From a player's perspective, this is where the Players Association comes in. And Demory Smith, being the president yeah. of that faction, has uh, team leaders. Can he represent all the players? Though? Well, yeah. I mean, he is. He, he's their boss, basically. Yeah, yeah. He's, the, he's the top dog. Every team has a team representative or, or a group of representatives who uh, respond and relay concerns to the president of the PA. So through him and with these team reps, uh, you know, all, all players are represented. Obviously, guys have different opinions and voices and, and issues and concerns, but I think they speak solely through uh, the PA president. And, and funny you should mention, you know, what are players saying? Uh, you know, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, recently said that 
listen, and this is after they all kneeled in unity a couple weekends ago. If you guys, if my players don't stand for the national anthem, they're going to be benched. They're mm-hmm. not going to play. Yeah. Uh, so they asked, you know, the media and, and reporters in Dallas asked players, even during the bye week, hey, you know, what do you think of your owners, your bosses' comments? And no one said a thing. It was no comment. It was, I don't want to talk about that, not going to touch that. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll so see what happens. Worked. Well... I mean, if you're Jerry Jones, are you going to sit your best players if they take a knee yeah. and, and cost yourselves games? And then people who pay hundreds of dollars of tickets uh, to, to watch your team and watch the best players, they would feel somewhat victimized as well. Does this just run out of gas? Do we just get tired of talking about it? Does, <sighs> does it get so overblown that the message is lost? I think the message, I'm not sure if the message has been lost. I think it's been muted a little bit. From when it first happened, yeah. you know, when we see Colin Kaepernick, and the first time it happens, he's sitting on the bench on the sideline by himself, yeah, yeah. and we're all thinking, oh, what's this all about? And then he, you know, reveals what it's all about, and that really ignited the dialogue yeah. uh, of what's happening. But since then, it's all been about, why aren't they standing now? I mean, they made their point, let's, let's move on. What happens at the Super Bowl? Well, that's the thing. You know, Ted Michaels and I were talking in the CHML News Center about hey, why don't we just ban, you know, I did this in my blog the other day, just ban national anthems. Like, we don't really need them. It's not the U.S. versus another country. It's, you know, Miami versus uh, Minnesota. Uh, all wow. these guys are American, right? Wow. You know what I mean? So why have the anthem? Scott Radley's talked about this on the show, too. <laughs> yeah, but usually whenever we've talked about, and, you know, and I've heard Scott Radley yak about the, the anthem and stuff on, on, on the air and such, but it's usually not about something like this. Uh, this True, still, this is you know, thrown a wrench into it. If you're going to drop the national anthem, that's sort of a separate discussion. Yeah. But saying deciding you're going to drop the national After anthem this, yeah. because it kind of <laughs> quashes the protest, <laughs> right. I don't know. Well, yeah, the players feel, you know, exactly. like the rug's taken out from under them. But, it, you know, for the Super Bowl, I mean, the anthem is one of the big things of the whole spectacle, right? Like, who's going to sing the anthem? Did they sing it well? You can bet on how long the person's sung the song for. Um, yeah, I mean... And Ted and I were talking, do you do you ban the anthem until the Super Bowl? And I said, well, you could do that, but then everyone would kneel during the Super Bowl. Yeah. And now, yeah. so you have a hundred some odd million people watching this one game and seeing all these players take a knee. Unbelievable. What are your thoughts on, uh, real quick, the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, going to the Visiting White House? Visiting the White House? Yeah. I think it was a uh, an okay move. I would have supported it if I was a player. This is a culmination of a great season, and, and they may not, to a man— agree with what Trump has done and or plans to do uh, or is hinted at doing. Uh, and I, I would have went. If I was a player, you know, this is one of the things, regardless of who's in the White House, you get to go to the White House and celebrate yeah. your championship season. There you go. Rick Zamperin has been with us, sports director of CHML and, of course, host of the fifth quarter, talking about taking the knee. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, talking about NFL owners meeting next week to consider changes to the game's manual that says that uh, players should stand during the national anthem. Uh, the commissioner says, of course, this is dividing everyone. Uh, some have even suggested dropping the anthem. I think any changes that you make to this is only going to uh, incite what we're, what we're seeing now. I mean, um, but where do you take it? Uh, on what the commissioner said... Where it is dividing the league, it's become uh, a social issue that uh, has bled into sports. How do you move forward? Let's bring in Gary Dierenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. Uh, your he is with us now. Gary, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Good to be with you. This is an odd issue, eh? How do you move forward on this? Yeah, well, you've well, got to get a bit of a history on it. We understand that the first player took a knee not because he was a bad guy, but because he needed to find a way to protest racial injustice. And that's what this has been about from the beginning. And Trump, you know, I hate giving credit where credit's due, but he's a master manipulator. And so he managed to change the conversation from racial injustice and turned it into patriotism, Hmm. such that those that now take the knee are somehow rather castigated as unpatriotic. And, you know, we have to remember what this taking the knee stands for. Uh, Black members of American society have a greater risk of being killed by police, even when they're innocent, than do white persons in America. That's what this is about. And so we have to be careful if we're going to get inducted into the change of channel uh, to the patriotism uh, discussion. Uh, It's not about patriotism. 
what uh, great point. Uh, what to those that say you've made your point, now you're just being disrespectful? Uh, you know, can you say to people, uh, okay, I understand you're protesting, but stop protesting, now we're going to fix it and hope for a change? No, uh, they haven't made their point because nothing has changed. Hmm. So the point needs to be continually brought forward. Hey, it's like saying, hey, we once talked about... So the point isn't... So let me, let me interrupt here, Gary. So the point isn't made until change is complete? Correct. Uh, so the example I was going to give, you know, we continue to talk about violence against women. The point has been made, Scott, yet violence against women continues, and thus, as a result, we need ongoing education, communication, and, and information about that. And so the racial injustice continues. And in fact, thanks to the, the misplaced brilliance of Trump, that racial injustice is perpetuated when he tries to turn this into an issue of patriotism, thus causing more racial uh, disharmony in the U.S. And, of course, you know, he'll lead ones to believe with his tweets that, you know, good to see that the NFL is jumping on board on this. And I, I can just imagine the NFL cringing every time uh, he draws himself into this discussion. Yeah, I, I would have to think so, too. He is um, a remarkable master manipulator. There are many folks that get inducted into his uh, shenanigans. And the challenge is to to take that step back and be an informed consumer of information. Look underneath it and also look at, at what he is, uh, what his aims and objectives are. He, he's racist. He's got white supremacy pumping through his veins. He grew up with a dad who was um, a member of the KKK. And, and people don't like to talk about that, but that's just a fact. And his policies support that way of thinking. And so hopefully, um, you know, if, if I were out there on the field as a white person, I'd want to take a knee at this point as well to support my fellow players, to support those who have been facing the racial injustice. I'm waiting for this to spread uh, come hockey season to the NHL. Uh, can he convince people that this is about patriotism, patriotism and not race? Yes, he can. And that is what makes, from my perspective, Trump a dangerous person. And we see that with other uh, folks with, with his kind of bent, that if they throw enough stuff against the wall, they're just hoping a little bit of it sticks. And the more some sticks, the more others other will stick. And so he continues to have a base at some 34 or 36 percent of, of uh, people in the U.S. who are sticking to him like glue, who, who he continues to influence. And that, that creates the dangers that we saw in uh, Charlottesville, where, where racist, white supremacist, neo-Nazis are given a platform that continue to divide uh, one set of people against another set of people. We don't need that. Uh, what earlier I asked you what you know how does the NFL move forward with this? Uh, the commissioner has said it's dividing the league, it's dividing the country. They're you know now wrapped up in this. Uh, Rick Zamper, our sports director, suggested that um, whether it's through programs or, or who knows what. But somehow, in order to move forward, the NFL has to prove to the players that it's going to uh, continue the discussion, that it's going to try to do something to move in, in a positive direction, that they can't just sit idle and tell us not to knee. Yeah, but that hasn't happened yet. And, and so with Trump trying to change the channel to patriotism, it almost means that the players have to ramp it up and take more knees so as to say, you're not going to change the channel on us. And I understand the NHL feels like they're in the middle. My view is they don't have to do anything. Uh, they have to just stand back and respect that um, this is a peaceful pro protest and uh, allow it and continue on. The more the NHL allows themselves to be inducted, then it, then it becomes more and more polarizing. So if I were the NHL, I'd You mean NFL? Or NFL, NFL yeah. sorry, yeah. thank you. If I were the NFL, I'd be saying, uh, not my issue. We have to support everybody's rights as Americans, and they have a right to protest. This is what they are doing here. 
And um, next, on with the game after the national anthem. Is you know that's an interesting approach. Is the NFL making too much of this? Is you say, hey, you know what, we're a big thing because it, it is you know drawing viewers, it is drawing attention to the league. Uh, at the end of the day, is it their problem? I mean, you know, here we're playing a game. If you want to demonstrate, you demonstrate. As long as the game's not interfered with, we're fine. Uh, that would be my attitude. That's that would be my guidance to the. NFL. Then why are they reacting this way, Gary? Why are they thinking that there's something that has to be done? Well, quite frankly, some of them may align with Trump in their thinking. Like, you know, there's bias everywhere, including in the NHL, including in coaches, including in uh, team owners. And so there may be some who, although their team may be comprised mostly of African Americans, it doesn't mean that they still think... um, uh, in terms of inclusion and equality. So, so that's the rampantness of, of uh, racism. However, you know, I would love for the NFL to stand up and say, you know, we just, it's not a matter of supporting our players or patriotism. They have a right to protest. It's a peaceful protest. We wish everyone would protest so peacefully, quite frankly. Hmm. And it's against uh, racial inequality. And whatever Trump has to say, that would be my talking point as the NFL, and I'd stick to it like glue because that is what's happening. Gary Dierenfeld is with his social worker, YourSocialWorker.com. Gary, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be with you. I wish the NFL would give me a call. You know what? We'll see if we can arrange that. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.